Now, no doubt there are many of you out there who belong to the cult that is Apple. I mean, the world of iPods and iPads and iMacs, not Granny Smiths and Pink Ladies and Golden Delicious. But this week, for those of you who are embedded in that culture of Apple, has been a little bit of a stir. As Mr. Jobs, the founder and chief executive of Apple, has resigned. He said this week in his statement, I've always said that if ever the day came when I could no longer meet my duties and expectations as Apple's chief executive, I would be the first to let you know. Unfortunately, that day has come. I hereby resign as chief executive of Apple. I believe Apple's brightest and most innovative days are ahead of it. It seemed that the investors didn't agree, though, because following that statement, the share prices dipped by about 5%. The investors in Apple obviously believe that without jobs at the helm, the future might not be quite so bright or innovative. See, the future of that movement in some ways depends on that one individual. If he goes, then... It is no small thing, no insignificant thing to lose that one leader. Now, if ever there was a group who their future depended on one individual, it was this group of disciples in John 14. I mean, up until this moment, they have been characterized by a lack of understanding, a lack of confidence and a lack of faith in Jesus. And their imminent future is going to involve denial and a paralysis of fear. If ever the future of a movement depended on one person, it was this group of disciples. Everything depended on Jesus. He was the one whose personalities had drawn the crowd. It was him that flocks of people had come to hear. He was the one who was raising the dead and healing the sick. Their very discipleship was defined in John's gospel as being with him. Everything depended on Jesus. If he goes, if he resigns, surely Christianity is over. Surely the share price plummets, the fad is eliminated and everything goes belly up. Everything depends on him. Presumably his disciples will go back to fishing. They've had their 15 minutes of fame. It is game over. If ever the future of a movement depended on one person, it was this group of disciples. And yet look at what Jesus says in chapter 13, verse 33 my children, I will be with you only a little longer. Like Steve Jobs, Jesus is going. John 14, in some ways, is his press conference as he goes. He is leaving. And in this press conference, he is going to be very clear with his disciples as to the reason why he must go, but also in giving them a commission of the work they are to do once he is gone. Now, these words are spoken very specifically to the disciples of Jesus, to Christians. But if you're not in that category this evening, if you wouldn't see yourself as a Christian, let me give you a reason for listening. You should at least be intrigued, at least, 
a little bit intrigued as to what Jesus says in this passage. Because what he says has left a following for the last 2,000 years. It hasn't dwindled out. The share prices haven't plummeted. But actually, whatever Jesus says in this passage has transformed these 11, because Judas has left, 11 floundering disciples into a multi-billion, multinational movement. You should at least be a little bit intrigued as to what Jesus says in this passage. But to those of us who are disciples, who are Christians, and to these first disciples, Jesus will say, okay, I'm going to give you a reason why I must go that will comfort your troubled hearts. And I will give you a commission of work to do that will employ your trembling hands. And we're going to see two things, one from verse 6 and one from verse 12. So here's the third thing. Jesus must go because if he... As he does, he can then say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He must go so that he can then say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's worth us just taking a moment to understand what a big moment this is in John's gospel. This is a huge turning point in the whole of this biography of Jesus. So far, all the movement has been this. Jesus has come from the Father to earth. That is the whole movement so far, from the Father to us. So we go back to the start, John 1, 14. We read, the Word became flesh, made his dwelling amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father. Okay? You see that? He has come from. And that is just piled up and piled up throughout the gospel. So let me give you a few examples. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son. John 3, 19, light has come into the world. John 5, 43, I have come in my Father's name. John 6, 38, I have come down from heaven. It still goes. John 7, 29, I have come from him. John 12, 46, I have come into the world as light. Do you get the point? The whole progression movement is I have come from the Father. He has come and he is with us and we have him. And then suddenly children. I'm going to be with you only a little while. This passage says, I'm going. Now, this is not only a massive movement in the gospel, a massive turning point. This is massive trauma for the disciples. So far, discipleship has been what? Being with Jesus. And all of a sudden, though they had him and they were with him, he says, I'm going. This is a little bit like you know when kids get to go around to their friends' houses to play and they do whatever they do, uh, they play for a while and then the mum comes in and she says, it is time to go home. Now that word, those words are like a detonator to chaos, aren't they? Because both children, the one who's had to come and visit and the one whose house it is, chaos, distress. I don't want to go home. That is the emotion that the disciples are feeling at this moment in John's Gospel. He has come and he is with us. And suddenly he says, I'm going. The disciples are thrown into this world of distress and confusion and sadness as Jesus says, I'm going to leave. And it's into these emotions that Jesus speaks these words of comfort. Do you notice the book ends at either end of this chapter? Look at verse 1. 
Jesus says to his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. And then again in verse 27, those words reverberate. And he says in verse 27, do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. Now pause there for a moment and let the context of those words stagger you. Jesus comforts his disciples. He comforts them. Twice in the last two chapters of John, we have been told Jesus' spirit was troubled. And then again, his heart was troubled. And with good reason. He knows that tomorrow is going to be the day that he will be betrayed. And his betrayal will lead to his arrest. And his arrest will lead to his trial. And his trial will lead to his brutal death. And he knows that he is not only going up before a human court, but he is entering about with the prince of darkness. He knows that he is not only going to a human execution, but he is going to drink the cup of his father's wrath. He has reason to be troubled. And yet he comforts his disciples. That is unparalleled love. He is not consumed by self-pity. He is not caught up in himself. But even in the shadow of his horrendous death, he is caring still for his disciples. Still he comforts them. Still he nurtures them. Still he cares for them. His concern is for them. That is amazing. The one who ought to be troubled. He comforts his disciples. Still, he gives and he gives and he gives. The question must be, though, okay, if Jesus, if you are all about giving, why are you going? Look at verse 2. Why does he go? Well, verse 2, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. See, Jesus' existence is not just all about coming from the Father, but it is a movement as he comes from the Father, he returns to the Father that he might take the disciples with him. Actually, his going is for their great advantage. He has been with them, yes, for three very intensive years but he is having this momentary separation that they might be with him for eternity. See, do not let your hearts be troubled, disciples. This is is not a long-term arrangement. This is a short-term separation for the sake of eternal intimacy. Now, do you notice the description of heaven there? I think it's quite surprising that you may be where I am that you may be with me. What do you find as a Christian is the most comforting aspect of heaven? I think often we come up with things like the alleviation of pain, the removal of suffering, and maybe the re- being reunited with a loved one. Actually, this serves just to reorientate us slightly and say, what is the thrill of heaven? What is the most comforting aspect? What is the most exciting prospect of heaven? It is to be where Jesus is. 
the house is of no comfort at all unless it is the Father's house. It could be a house full of our best friends, full of no tears and no suffering. But if Jesus is not in that house, even that house is hell. Because heaven is to be with him. That is the comfort Jesus offers his disciples. Just as life here is determined as being with him, so too heaven is to be with Jesus. Well, at this point in verse 5, do you notice Thomas comes out with an outburst? There's three questions in this passage. I think it's worth noticing. These questions are not kind of well-schooled, well-thought-through questions that come from a sterile environment like a lecture theater. These are bubbling up out of the intense emotions of this sadness. But Jesus doesn't slam the disciples for what are quite ignorant questions at one level. Still he nurtures. Still he cares. He doesn't ridicule them. So Thomas asks... Lord, we don't know where you are going. So how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, how on earth can he say that? How can he claim that unique privilege of being the way to the Father? How can he say such a statement, which means that all other attempts at coming to God are futile and even wrong? How can he say that? Well, John 14 will tell us that it is because of who he is and actually in the very act of his going. Who he is because actually he is one with the Father. Look with me at a few verses in this chapter. In verse 1, he can claim this unique highway to God, if you like, because He is one with God. In the same breath, he can say, trust in God, trust also in me. Look down at verse 7. In verse 7, to know him is to know the Father. In verse 9, to see him is to see the Father. In verse 10, he says, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Again in verse 10, his words are the Father's words. Again in verse 10, his work is the Father's work. He is the way to God because he is God. He is God the Son made flesh. So that when you see him, you are seeing God on display. See, the reason he can take them, the disciples, and us to the Father's house is because he is the Father's Son. The reason he can take us to be with the Father is because that is the place he has come from. Remember John 1 verse 1? He was with God in the beginning. He was God. See, there is no mystery anymore to how we can find our way to God. In the person of Jesus Christ, it is made illuminatively clear. Thomas, there is no mystery here. To see Jesus is to see the Father. To hear the words that Jesus speaks or to hear the Father narrated perfectly to us. Jesus is the truth of God on display. Do you know what's interesting actually? If you look down to verse 20, Jesus speaks of a day. That day he speaks to there, he's referring of, is the resurrection day. The day is three days after his crucifixion. He says, on that day, you will realize that I am in my Father. There is something about the resurrection of Jesus which teaches Thomas and the other disciples that he is God. 
Now you flick forward a few chapters to John 20 and you ask, okay, what does Thomas exclaim when he sees the resurrected Jesus? Sure, he doubts at first. Eventually he gets it. He says, my Lord and my God. This Jesus is the way to the Father because he is God. But secondly, he is also the way to the Father because of the very act of his going. Uh, The whole purpose, the whole point of this movement from heaven to earth is so that he might leave again. In fact, the very purpose for the eternal son becoming flesh is so that his flesh might hang on a tree, that he might create the way for you and for me to come to the Father. Don Carson writes helpfully, it is the going itself via the cross and resurrection that prepares the place for Jesus' disciples. He came that he might leave via the cross to prepare a place for you in the Father's house. See, his, his leaving was actually the greatest expression of his love for his disciples. His leaving via the cross was the kindest thing he could do. Because as he died his death, he was dying that he might rise again three days later so he could say in verse 19, because I live, you also will live. See, to troubled souls, Jesus says, believe. Have faith. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In me, I am everything you need to get to God. And in me, I have done everything necessary to create the way to him. He is the way, the truth, the life. Church Apple, this is the fuel and the driver behind our evangelism, is it not? If we believe this, that there is no other way, no other name given under heaven, this will radically impact the way we interact with the world outside. Uh, there were three guys who came in last night to hear Steph McLeod. I was chatting to them afterwards. And one of them asked me the question, very bluntly. He said, do you believe in hell and that people who do not believe in Jesus go there? And I answered him back quite bluntly. I said, if I didn't believe in hell, I would be in bed right now. I was tired at about half past ten last night. Their banter wasn't that great. I would have preferred to have been in bed the reality of this statement that he is the one way, the truth, and the life. I was content to stay up a little bit longer and get a little bit more tired because these three guys needed to hear this truth. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a disciple, the place you need to start is by asking the question, who is this Jesus? And actually, you, you cannot conclude that he was just a good man. That is not an option, actually. Because if he was just a man who made this claim, he is not good. He is an arrogant, deluded deceiver. For just a man to claim this uh, statement, he would be so arrogant and wicked to offer this empty comfort to these disciples. Concluding that Jesus was just a good man is not an option. But if he is God then the logical conclusion, if God has become man, if God has put himself on display in Jesus, is that he must be the only way to 
God. The truth of the Bible that it teaches about ourselves is that we have all chosen to go our own way rather than his way. We have said that his truth is actually a lie and actually we receive death and not life. But the glorious truth of the gospel is that Jesus has stooped so low, he has come so far that he might die a death on the cross that you deserve, that he might say to you, because I live, you also shall live. It's, it's, it's not a situation like Steve Jobs where he's saying, my health's not good enough for me to carry on. It is saying, I must do this. I must. I must lay down my life so that it would be for your eternal benefit. The question you must answer is, who is this Jesus? That is the, the truth on which this church, which has lasted for 2,000 years, that is the truth that these disciples laid down their life for and which we hold to so dearly. He is the way, the truth, and life because of who he is and in the very act of his going. But in this press conference, he does not only give the reason why he must go, he gives a commission to those of us who are his disciples. What are we to be doing in his absence? Look down with me, not at verse 6, now at verse 12. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Whenever he says that, it's worth listening. I, I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what? Do what I have been doing. He will, even, he will do even greater things than these because I am going to my father. Steve Jobs has passed the buck onto a guy called Tim Cook, apparently. Uh, looking to a more innovative future. Jesus passes the buck onto these 11 disciples. And his simple commission is, do as I have been doing. Now that's not a surprise to us who have been reading John's gospel over the last couple of weeks. You remember back to two weeks ago now when Jesus washed his disciples' feet? What did he say? He said, I have set you an example so that you should do as I have done. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them, Jesus says. Do as I have been doing. And then last week, end of chapter 13 again, he said, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Jesus is still banging the same drum in John 15. Let me show you a couple of points. Look at verse 15. Hear the same themes? If you love me, you will obey what I command. Look down at verse 21. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. And then down to verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will obey his teaching. There's a glorious description of what it means to be a Christian. It's not a, a religion driven by guilt or duty. It's driven by being madly in love with Jesus. Great description of what it means to be a Christian. But what is the work that those who love Jesus are to do. Do as he has been doing. Obeying him, and that in the context of John, is loving others. Glance down at verse 31. We see this really clearly. What has Jesus been doing? What must the world know that Jesus does? The world must learn that I love the Father and do exactly what the Father has commanded me. 
Jesus is defined by loving his Father and so obeying him, which we've seen already, is seen in his love for others. What are you to do in Jesus' absence? How is the world to know that he loves the Father now that he is gone? You will love him and so obey his commands and love others. Now, that, that serves as quite a good spiritual checkup for those of us who are Christians. Uh, do you obey Jesus' commands and do you love others? I started reading a book this week. It's quite a new one out. It's called uh, Am I Really a Christian? It's a great book. But the author picks up two of these, these two things in two chapters. Uh, they're quite hard reading. The first chapter is called, You are not a Christian if you enjoy sin. That is, you are not a Christian if you do not obey Jesus. Second one, you are not a Christian if you do not love other people. Now that is not to say that these are the things that make us a Christian. We've seen already that happened by his death and resurrection. But to be a Christian is to be doing the same things that Jesus has been doing. Obeying him and loving others. Let's run a couple of tests to see how we're doing spiritually. So you can ask the question, in terms of loving others, how do you react when suffering comes? When suffering comes, do you go all introspective? And are you consumed with self-pity and self-protection? See, the interesting uh, contrast that is set up in this passage is, Here is Jesus who is overwhelmed by the prospect of suffering, who still loves others. He cares for his disciples. Do you know the contrast? His disciple, Peter. Suffering is going to come to Peter, not in massive intensity, but a little servant girl is going to come and ask him some questions. Are you one of his disciples? Weren't you with him? And in that moment... Tragically, Peter was, rather than loving that servant girl, rather than obeying Jesus, he served himself. He loved himself and protected himself that he might not suffer. Question for us this week, are we going to suffer well like Jesus and look out of ourselves and serve others, love others? Or are we going to pull a Peter and actually just be concerned about looking after number one? It's worth asking, what, what would it have looked like for Peter to love that servant girl? Interesting question, isn't it? What would he have said to her? What could he have said? What could that opportunity have led to? Second test. How do you react when temptation comes? How do you react when the opportunity for Sinful pleasure arises. See, again, the, the contrast is set up. Will Jesus obey his Father or, and go to the cross, or will he run? We know, don't we? Perfect submission to his Father. Perfect obedience. The contrast? Judas. Temptation comes a wallet jangling with 30 silver coins. Judas, are you going to love Jesus or are you going to love money more? 
Are you going to obey Jesus or are you going to obey your lusts? Who are you going to serve? See, Jesus calls us to do as he has been doing. We must be serving others, even in our own suffering. And it must be the shout that we must obey Jesus because we love him, because he loved his father and obeyed his father that we might have life because he lives. Now, if you're anything like me, it is quite convicting to think of those two things. I don't do very well on those tests. And I think Jesus knew that his disciples weren't going to do very well either. And so in this rest of John 14, we're going to see that he bountifully equips his disciples. He bountifully provides them with the resources they will need to live a life of love for him and obedience to him and service of others in this world of hostility. Uh, And we're going to see he he does it in overload. He goes and he comes back with the resources of the whole trinity to be at your disposal. So three things, very quick. See what he gives us as this Trinitarian resources. He gives prayer in Jesus' name. Read with me at verse 13. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Now that is not that his name is a magic formula that we can use to conjure up when we fancy a new iPad 2 or whatever, but it is to say that our prayers are to be in line with what he has been doing. Everything that has come under the banner of his name. So we are to pray. To stay with the Apple mindset, if you're familiar with Apple things, prayer is to be the USB cable that links us to Jesus that sinks us with his Father's will. Without that, we're dead batteries. See, disciples who live when Jesus is absent, which is us, have been given the phenomenal resource of prayer. Prayer is to define the life of a disciple who lives while Jesus is physically absent. Secondly, not only prayer in the Son's name, but we are lived in by the Spirit. See, though Jesus leaves, he can still amazingly speak of real intimacy. How can he do that? Well, because he gives another counselor. Verse 16, I will ask the Father, he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. And we read, he lives with you and will be in you. See, in the battle to live a life of love for Jesus, obedience to him, and service of others, you are not alone. But actually, by his Spirit, you and Jesus are together forever. If discipleship for his disciples whilst on earth meant being with him, and the glory of heaven is that then we shall be with him, actually, Jesus even now speaks of being with him by his spirit. See, the sermon title for tonight, it's on the bulletins, it's rubbish. (laughs) I hate sermon titles. I'm rubbish at coming up with them. But the idea was to be with me, with you. It's awful. But what I wanted to try and get across was by being the way, the truth, and the life, we can be with him in heaven. But the joy of his Holy Spirit is that even now he can be with us on earth. 
Though he is physically absent, he is no less with us because you are together forever by his Spirit. And to complete this kind of Trinitarian resource pack, he not only brings with him the Spirit, but Jesus brings with him the love of the Father. Look at verse 23. My Father will love him. This is amazing. We will come to him and make our home with him. Now, do you see the, the progression in the gospel here as it's presented? What happened the first time when Jesus came from the Father? He came alone. He came to earth as a baby. He grew up, he lived, he died. He came and he went. Why? So that when he comes to live in you, he comes not alone, but with his Father. And him and his Father take up permanent residence within you together forever as he indwells us by his spirit see do not let your hearts be troubled disciples of Jesus do not be afraid life in this world loving Jesus and obeying him and serving others will be tough in a world of hostility it does engage us in a battle with the prince of this world but do not let your hearts be troubled Jesus has come and went that he might not only take you to be with him, but in the meantime, bring the entirety of the glory of the Trinity to be with you. And as he is with you, he longs that you would do as he has been doing. I can't get my head around verse 12. Do you see what it says in verse 12? I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. He will do even greater things. (laughs) Really? possibility of greater things. I think it means that we are not just looking forward, anticipating the cross and the resurrection, but because we come after the cross and the resurrection, we stand on the finished, completed, certain work of Christ. So that actually in this new era of clarity of the gospel, there is the potential for great gospel work. Let me read to you from J.C. Ryle. Let us learn that his visible presence is not absolutely necessary to the progress of his kingdom. He can help forward his cause on earth quite as much by sitting at the right hand of the Father and sending forth the Spirit as by walking to and fro in the world. Let us believe there is nothing too hard or too great for believers to do, so long as the Lord intercedes for them in heaven. Let us work on in faith and expect great things, though we feel weak and lonely like the disciples. Our Lord is working with us and for us, though we cannot see him. If only we prayed in Jesus' name. If only we were convinced by the reality of the Spirit's present within us. And if only we truly, we grasped the love of the Father. Listen to this morning's sermon to get that. If only we grasped the love of the Father my goodness, we would attempt greater things. We would not be satisfied in what we currently do. Let me speak to you finally if you're not a Christian. Chances are you're left thinking two things. What arrogance of Jesus to claim that he is the only way. And also left thinking, man, these Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. 
You've told me they're meant to live a life of love. Uh, I've not seen that. Well, I'll be the first to put my hands up and say, uh, yes, I am a horrendous hypocrite. I am, I am not what I should be. I do not do what I should do. But you know, the world needs to know that Jesus loves the Father. I'm a floundering disciple, and you need to look at the one that I look to. See, he, he loves the Father. The Father is worth knowing. He is lovable. He is glorious. And amazingly, Jesus has, had a, has made a way for you to know him. And if he is the way, it is not arrogant of him to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Actually, if he kept quiet, if he didn't tell you that, that would be a horrible thing. That would be that selfishness that so often defines us. But it is in the self-giving love of Jesus. In great generosity and kindness, he says tonight to you, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I can bring you to the Father so that you might live with me as I live. Let's pray together.